When the Bible is silent on an issue, what's the process that God gives us for making the correct decision? Is there any justification for this Old Testament practice of casting lots to determine the will of God? And what is the best flavor of ice cream? The answers to all these questions may surprise you, and you'll find out what they are today on the Cross References Podcast. References podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor, I'm a minister, and I like chocolate ice cream. If you offer me a vanilla ice cream or a chocolate ice cream, I don't even have to think about it, I'm going to choose the chocolate every time. If you gave me the decision a hundred times, That just means I have a hundred chocolate ice cream cones coming my way. Now, frankly, I've forgotten where I was going with this intro. All I can think about now is a row of a hundred chocolate ice cream cones. And I don't know about you, but I know what I'm doing as soon as this podcast is done. So the choice between chocolate and vanilla, that's an easy choice for me. Now, if you start throwing mint chocolate chip ice cream in there too, that's where things start to get a little bit hazy for me. I don't just have one good option at that point. I have two. And now the choice has gotten a little bit more complicated. Every day we have to make choices. And some choices are clear, like the difference in chocolate and vanilla. But some choices are cloudy. When you start throwing this mint chocolate chip into the mix, now I'm not so sure what I'm going to do. Sometimes it seems like there's no clear distinction to help us decide one thing over another. Many times in life we face a dilemma. A A dilemma is not a choice between the right thing and the wrong thing. A dilemma is the choice between a good thing and another good thing, or between a bad thing and another bad thing. A dilemma is a hard decision. If it was between a good idea and a bad idea, then it wouldn't be a dilemma. It wouldn't even really be a choice. We'd know exactly what to do. But then there are times where we're choosing between one job or another, one house or another, one car or another, chocolate or mint chocolate chip, and what was once clear becomes hazy. And maybe you've faced those big decisions in your own life, those areas where the Bible doesn't necessarily tell us one thing or another. And so when those situations in life come up, we, we seek God's guidance and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray. We fast. We might fast for days. We might fast for weeks. However long the lady at Wendy's is going to let you stand at the counter. And this is going to be an episode today to help you make those decisions when you get into those dilemmas. This is something that we all need help with from time to time. Maybe you're struggling with a choice like that right now, and perhaps this study today is going to speak to your situation. This is part of our series on Ezekiel. In last week's episode, we left off at verse 17 of chapter 21, and so if you're ready, go ahead and and grab your own Bible. Let's turn there, and let's see what God has for us next. Once again, using the CSB version of the Bible for this week's study. That's the Christian Standard Version. And I just happen to really like the way that it renders these verses. So I jumped away from the ESV this time. um, Because this section of scripture is a song. It's the song of the sword. The sword of God's judgment that he's bringing against Jerusalem. And the reason that I preferred the CSB version over the ESV 
the CSB actually presents this in a lyrical format. And so the ESV doesn't, it kind of just throws it all together. Most of it just into a paragraph. And I don't, I don't like that so much. So we're doing the CSB this time. And so that's where we are in the story. First, God is going to send an army. This army is commanded by King Nebuchadnezzar, and he's sending them to wipe out the city of Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't even realize that he's being sent by God. And so we're going to look today at how Nebuchadnezzar made this decision to come up against Jerusalem. And we'll pick that up at verse 18. The word of the Lord came to me. Now you, son of man, mark out two roads that the sword of Babylon's king can take. Both of them should originate from the same land and make a signpost at the fork in the road to each city. Mark out a road that the sword can take to Rabbah of the Ammonites and to Judah and to fortify Jerusalem. So basically, Nebuchadnezzar is standing at a fork in the road. Okay, that's what I want you to visualize here. This, this really happened. Nebuchadnezzar was standing at a fork in the road, going on a conquest through the Middle East, conquering one nation after another. He's already conquered all the way from Babylon to Egypt. He's on his way back right now, and he's picking up some victories at some of these smaller nations that he bypassed the first time around. And so that's what he's doing. He's standing at this fork in the road, and he's trying to decide which way to go next. So to the left is Ammon. That's one of the cities on his list. And to his right is Jerusalem. And that's another enticing prospect. And so he has a decision to make, and this is the way that he makes it. Verse 21, For the king of Babylon stands at the split in the road, at the fork of the two roads, to practice divination. He shakes the arrows, consults the idols, and observes the liver. So he uses three methods by which to decide where to go next. And these are all considered divination. The first method is that he shakes some arrows. This is similar to the practice of drawing straws. He just used arrows instead of straws. So somebody with a quiver of arrows, they came along and they had different arrows. And perhaps these arrows had Ammon or Jerusalem written on them. Perhaps they had like a different color on certain arrows and one color meant Ammon and one meant Jerusalem. We're not sure exactly how he did it, but he shook up the quiver of arrows and then he drew one at random and that's how he decided where to go. So basically it was like flipping a coin. Only this was actually a way that ancient people would sometimes make big decisions and they described a lot of meaning to what we would look at as random chance. This practice is known as bellomancy today. Then the second method that Nebuchadnezzar used was consulting the teraphim. This is a Hebrew word that refers to the household gods. And so basically this just meant idolatry, just asking the idols what to do. I'm not sure how they answered. And then the third method that Nebuchadnezzar used was looking at the liver. And this was another ancient practice. This one, <laughs> this is not for the faint of heart. This, this is going to kill that craving you had for some ice cream if, you, if I gave you that earlier. Uh, a witch doctor type of guy would slaughter an animal and then he would start separating out its internal organs. He'd do it right there on the spot. So right there at that fork in the road, this guy is looking at the, the innards of some kind of animal. And then he would look at the characteristics of the different organs and he would, he would derive some sort of meaning out of that. Kind of like someone reading a palm or something like that. But he was doing it with the blood and guts of some kind of animal that he slaughtered. For example, he used a liver. He looked at the markings on the liver. And these markings, they believed, somehow expressed a divine will, showing which way to go. This was something they actually did in ancient times. It's called hep hepatoscopy. I think I said that right. 
hepatoscopy. It's creepy stuff, okay? So obviously all these methods that Nebuchadnezzar was using to figure out where to go, these are all pagan. These are not the correct way to make a decision. And yet, it works. It actually works. Look at verse 22. The answer Mark Jerusalem appears in his right hand, indicating that he should set up battering rams, give the order to slaughter, raise a battle cry, set battering rams against the gates, build a ramp, and construct a siege wall. So basically, this practice that Nebuchadnezzar used, it sent him right where God wanted him to go. Unbeknownst to Nebuchadnezzar, he was acting out God's divine will. Nebuchadnezzar is going to march down to Jerusalem. He's going to engage in siege warfare against the city. And we know from previous lessons that the Babylonians, they're going to, they're going to camp out around Jerusalem for more than a year. Nobody in or out, no supply of food or water. The people were going to be starved out. And then when they were too weak to fight, Babylon would invade the city. And the Israelites just thought all this, thought it was too far-fetched, that it would never happen. They thought God would never let a king use pagan methodology to lead them to destroy Babylon and then to be so successful at it. They just thought that would never happen. God would never allow it. But that's exactly what God did, verses 23 and 24. It will seem like false divination to those who have sworn an oath to the Babylonians, but it will draw attention to their guilt so that they will be captured. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says, because you have drawn attention to your guilt, exposing your transgressions so that your sins are revealed in all your actions. Since you have done this, you will be captured by them. Criticizing Nebuchadnezzar's methodology, that's going to be cold comfort to these Israelites when Babylon comes knocking on Jerusalem's doors. God says, you might not like my method of bringing Nebuchadnezzar here, but nevertheless, he's coming. So what about for us? You know, here we are thousands of years later. Would God still do stuff like this? Would he reveal his will using these squeamish or pagan or even incorrect methods of discerning his will? Well, we're going we're gonna to revisit that question whenever we get to the application section at the end of the lesson. So hang tight after we get done with the, the verses from Ezekiel today. Then we're going to come back to this idea of how to determine God's will the right way and kind of analyze these methods that they used in the Old Testament. Okay, let's get back to Ezekiel's Song of the Sword. He's going to start singing to Zedekiah. That's the evil king. That's the last king of Israel. And if you remember from the past, Ezekiel doesn't like Zedekiah, to put it mildly, doesn't even dignify Zedekiah with the word king. He refers to him as a prince. Ezekiel 21 verses 25 through 27. And you, profane and wicked prince of Israel, the day has come for your punishment. This is what the Lord God says. Remove the turban and take off the crown. Things will not remain as they are. Exalt the lowly and bring down the exalted. A ruin, a ruin. I will make it a ruin. Yet this will not happen until he comes. I have given the judgment to him. Now that might not have sounded much harsher than anything else Ezekiel has said. In the Hebrew, it is, it is told to me, but I don't speak Hebrew, but according to the commentaries I was studying, this is the strongest language that Ezekiel has, has utilized the whole time. He's calling his king profane and calling him wicked, calling it to him directly. That might not stand out a whole lot to us in English, but in the Hebrew, these are the strongest words that he has used in the whole book. Ezekiel just called for a political revolution. He said that those with the crown should lose it. And he said those who are low should be put in charge. 
Jesus actually quoted from this in uh, what, well, what, what Ezekiel said in verse 26. He said, exalt the lowly and bring down the exalted. That was something Jesus actually quoted in the book of Luke, chapter 14, verse 11. He said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's a spiritual principle that we see repeated throughout the Bible, referring to pride. Prideful people, if they won't humble themselves, God always finds a way of doing it for them. And then in verse 27, so back here in Ezekiel, he had this phrase. He said, until he comes. And that might just seem like an ordinary phrasing of words. That's actually a specific Hebrew phrase. I'm not going to say it correctly, because like I said before, I don't speak Hebrew. But this was a very common, uh, maybe you call it idiom in the, in the Hebrew language. The Jews had this idiom that went, Adbo uzer lo hamaspat unitwai. It, <laughs> I know I didn't say that right. It was the, it's first found in Genesis 49. You might remember from last week's lesson, the previous lesson, there was a reference to Genesis 49 where it says the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. So the expression, if you understand it, it to be understood rightly, it's referring to the coming Messiah. It is the future Messiah who would rule with a scepter. And this is who the Jews were waiting for as their savior. They just kept, they kept waiting and waiting for Adbo Uzer, Lohemespet Unutwai. He who comes. Okay, this is a phrase they had that meant he who comes. And Ezekiel is using that phrase right here, but he's not talking about a Messiah. He said the sword of judgment is given to the slayer's hand, and when he who comes shows up, you're all toast. Okay, he's using that phrase. He's using it deliberately here because the Jews are looking for their Messiah. They were, they were kind of looking up, looking for their Messiah. And Ezekiel says, instead of looking up for your Messiah, he's, he's not coming anytime soon. He didn't say that, but that we know that's true. He wasn't coming in their generation. Ezekiel says, instead of looking up here for a Messiah, you should have been looking over there for Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one who's coming that you should be focused on right now. So let's finish up this chapter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the rest of it here, probably in one go. This is, this is a mini prophecy against Ammon here towards the end. As we said earlier, Nebuchadnezzar has a choice to make. He's trying to decide whether to attack Ammon or whether to attack Jerusalem. And so Ammon, I guess Ammon is still going to get it. They're, they're just going to get it later. But the last few verses of this chapter, they are about what's coming to, to, um, to Ammon itself. So verse 28, now you son of man, prophesy and say, this is what the Lord God says concerning the Ammonites and their content. You are to proclaim a sword, a sword is drawn for the slaughter polished to consume, to flash like lightning, while they offer false visions and lying divinations about you. The time has come to put you to the necks of the profane wicked ones. The day has come for final punishment. Let me break in here briefly. Ezekiel has put Ammon on notice as well. He said, oh, you think you've escaped God's judgment. You think that you've escaped God's judgment for your sins just because Jerusalem came up first on Nebuchadnezzar's list. Ezekiel says, nope, you are still on the list. And then as the song concludes, Ezekiel talks about Nebuchadnezzar returning home to Babylon and how someday Nebuchadnezzar himself is going to be judged. Return to its sheath. I will judge you in the place where you were created, in the land of your origin. I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow the fire of my fury on you. I will hand you over to brutal men skilled at destruction. You will be fuel for the fire 
your blood will be spilled within the land. You will not be remembered, for I, the Lord, have spoken. So we see here, there's no heroes in this story. Israel has been bad. Ammon seems to skirt by, but nope, they're still bad too, and they're going to get theirs too. So does that mean Nebuchadnezzar's the hero? He's the one swinging the sword of God's judgment. Is he the hero of the story? Nope. Nebuchadnezzar's going to face God's judgment as well. You actually read about it in Daniel 4. Remember, remember this spiritual principle. He who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Nobody exalted himself more than Nebuchadnezzar. He loved strutting around on top of his palace, looking at everything he had, thinking himself to have earned it. But God had something else to say about that. And Nebuchadnezzar was given the mind of a beast. He spent seven years living like a wild animal because he who exalted himself was humbled. And when Nebuchadnezzar was given his sanity back, he had learned who was really in charge of this universe. There was a God in heaven who was sovereign over all. That's why God can use the one bad guy to punish another bad guy, and then another bad guy to go back and punish the first guy. This, this is how God works. This is what made Habakkuk's head spin. But this is how God operates. He's the mastermind of all creation, and he's the only actual hero of the story. And as we close down today, we're going to talk about how deep God's sovereignty goes, how detailed it is over even minute, tiny little thing. What you learn may surprise you. If you haven't done so yet, make sure you check out the podcast Connecting the Gap with Daniel Moore. And I recently recorded a couple of episodes with him on his podcast. And so you can take a look at that if you want. Um, Probably anywhere you can find my podcast here, you can also find his as well. He has a Bible study podcast like mine. And some of his recent episodes, like I said, they included yours truly. Um, Plus, you can find a lot of other great content as well. Scroll through all his episodes and see all the stuff that he has. And we're going to close down in a few minutes with a quick recap and some personal application of this chapter. If you appreciated today's Bible study, uh, one thing you could do to show your appreciation, if you, uh, first of all, say a prayer that more people will find it. Um, I would appreciate that. Um, Or if you just share it yourself, that's fine. Or if you leave a like or a positive review, all those things help it to rise in the rankings. But um, even if you just say a prayer, more than anything else, I appreciate that. So if you have a question on this chapter, just leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you would like to hear about in the future. Next time on this podcast, I have a couple of uh, what I think are interesting episodes lined up. The first is going to be three acronyms every Christian should know. There are some very interesting changes on the horizon with new technologies, and I think they come into play with what the Bible says about the end times, what the Bible says about the world empire of the Antichrist. And so if you want to be a discerning Christian in these last days, make sure you come back for next next week's episode, three acronyms every Christian should know. And then two weeks from now, I'm going to feature an interview, um, uh, an interview of my own. I'm going to share a conversation that I had with Nate Vinio. He is a fellow podcaster. He has a show called Something to Not On. This is a weekly podcast. And personally, I get a lot of enjoyment out of um, listening to it. I get a lot of insight out of it. And so I reached out to him and I decided to, to just do a podcast episode together. So that episode is going to come out in a couple of weeks. With It's going to feature Nate Vinio of the Something to Not On podcast. 
if you want to look at look up his show ahead of time and see what it's all about, um, I think you'll be blessed. And so, okay, we got all that housekeeping stuff out of the way. Let's talk about the thing that piqued my interest the most in this episode, and it's the way to make godly decisions, the method by which people made decisions in the Old Testament. I found this really interesting the more that I dug into it. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to decide which city to attack first, and he uses a series of methods that, um, (laughs) to us, they seem to leave the outcomes entirely up to chance. And these methods indicate to Nebuchadnezzar that he is to attack Jerusalem, and coincidentally, that's exactly where God wanted him to go. So perhaps it's not so coincidental, right? To Nebuchadnezzar, it might have seemed like a divine entity, one of his false gods, had led him to attack Jerusalem. To a rational outside observer, we might say that this happened entirely by chance. The most similar practice of this that we see in scripture is something called casting or drawing lots. That's a practice that involves something that was similar to rolling dice or flipping a coin or drawing straws, something that we would normally ascribe to random chance. But when Nebuchadnezzar does it himself, it works out perfectly fine for him. It kind of reminds me of um, Proverbs 16.33. And this is back in the ESV now. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This proverb is saying that when you cast a lot, and whenever you leave something to random chance, God is still determining the outcome. You might call it chance, a roll of the dice, you lucky or unlucky, or fate. But this verse says that nothing is those things. Nothing is random. God is still in control of it all. So now you have someone to blame whenever you land on Boardwalk and your wife has a couple houses built there. <laughs> this is not just random. God is in control, even of the roll of a dice. Now, here's something interesting. Make sure you listen all the way to the end of this lesson, you know, before you go out and try this yourself. But listen to this. God seemed to really respect the, this practice of casting lots in the Old Testament. And we don't know exactly what casting lots was. Um, it was something similar to what Nebuchadnezzar did. That was the shaking of the arrows. But we don't know exactly what it was, except that we just know this was basically a game of chance. Um, I googled it, gotquestions.com. They had an interesting answer about this. They said, The practice of casting lots is mentioned 70 times in the Old Testament and seven times in the New Testament. That just blew my mind right there. Just that weird, it's that numerology that, that God often employs. It's that use of the number seven that repeats throughout the Bible. 70 times casting lots is mentioned in the Old Testament and seven times in the New Testament. <laughs> that right there was mind-blowing on its own. What does that mean? I don't know, but I've, I sure found it interesting. Here, let me read on. In spite of the many references to casting lots in the Old Testament, nothing is known about the actual lots themselves. They could have been sticks of various lengths, flat stones like coins, or some kind of dice. But their exact nature is unknown. The closest modern practice to casting lots is likely flipping a coin. So we say, okay, casting lots, game of chance. Doesn't seem like the most spiritual way to make your decisions. Okay, it's like, God, should we go to Disneyland or Universal Studios for our family vacation? Let's cast lots to decide. You know, doesn't seem like the most spiritual way to determine God's will. And yet, as I said, God respected it. God used that method to reveal his will several times in the Old Testament. He did that with believers and unbelievers. And so, um, and I know that sounds a little far-fetched, but if you'll give me a moment, I'll just make my case here. 
when Jonah was hiding out on that ship. He's on his way to Tarshish. And the sailors were trying to figure out who had made the gods so mad that their ship was about to be overturned in the storm. Well, it says this in Jonah 1.7. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So their practice of casting lots, something that was just what we would say is just totally by chance, yet it worked out in directing them to identify Jonah as the source of their trouble, to correctly identifying Jonah. Another example, when King Saul and his men, they were out on a conquest mission. They were trying to figure out who had sinned and caused God to give them the silent treatment. And it said this in 1 Samuel 14, 42, Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taking, taken. Without getting into that whole story, we see once again, a lot being used to lead the people to a correct answer from God. Another example, when the Israelites were trying to determine who had caused Israel to lose the battle in Ai in Joshua 7, it seems apparent that they used lots to determine that it was Achan's fault. They rolled the dice, they used the Urim and the the Thummim stones, whatever the process was, but God actually directs the process. He did it to lead the sailors to identify Jonah, for Saul to identify Jonathan, and for Joshua to identify Achan in that story in uh, Joshua 7. And and that's not all that Joshua used lots for. (laughs) Do you want to know how he divided up the land of Israel and how he made the, the big decision of how to decide which tribe got how much and which part another tribe got? He didn't punch a bunch of equations into a calculator. He didn't come up with some kind of equation so that it was all fair and proportional and equitable. He didn't do that. He cast lots for it. Joshua 18.10. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. So I just find that fascinating. Something that would look totally unspiritual, totally unwise. We would never make a big decision like that just by casting lots, playing a game of chance to decide something big, like where you draw the borders of states or something like that. That's not how we would make a decision. And yet God let Israel do that. And he led them through that. And he even let pagans do it in the Old Testament again and again and again. And he would show them his will through that process. You can see it in 1 Chronicles 24 and in chapters 25 and 26. When they were dividing up the temple duties, they cast lots for it. We, we saw the sailors in Jonah and use it. And even Nebuchadnezzar here in Ezekiel 21 uses basically that method. And he figures out what God's will is. As I read it earlier, but I'll read it again. The lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is directing even things that we would call chance. I just finished reading this amazing book. It was called Esther. Have have you heard of the book of Esther? (laughs) This book doesn't mention God even one time. It's an entire book of the Bible, but God is never mentioned by name one time throughout that book. Some say Esther shouldn't even be in the Bible, that they say, well, this is a really good story, but it shouldn't be a Bible book because it doesn't even talk about God. And yet, as you read the book of Esther, even though it doesn't mention God by name, you can see God's fingerprints all over the book. This is a book of amazing coincidences. It has mind-blowing coincidences. My favorite part is whenever the evil Haman, he's coming to ask the king to kill Mordecai. And as soon as he comes around the corner, the king has just been up all night reading stories 
about what a great dude Mordecai was. And as soon as he runs into Haman, he tells Haman to go throw Mordecai a party. (laughs) It's just, (laughs) it's a really funny turn of events. It's probably the funniest chapter in the Bible. And the book of Esther is just like that. It's just one coincidence after another. One coincidence after another. Everybody constantly being in the right place at just the right time to make everything come together. And, And even though God isn't mentioned in the story, nobody could have orchestrated all these events to come together except for God himself. God is clearly in control of every decision that each person in that book makes, whether it's big or whether it's small. But God doesn't leave anything to chance because God is not a God of coincidences. Nothing is random. God brings everything together just as it should be. God even used these random games of chance, like casting lots. He even used those things to direct big decisions In the Old Testament, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So now maybe you're wondering, the the question I hope that you're wondering is, wow, wow, I didn't know God could do all this or that he would do all this. But is that how God wants me to make decisions today? So is that just an Old Testament practice? And, And if it was just an Old Testament practice, then what changed that made it only something for Old Testament times? Like, why are we not supposed to do it today? Because you know what? We are never explicitly told in the Bible to stop making decisions like this. We're not ever told that. And yet, I think we're actually given a pretty big clue that this is not how we are to make decisions today. And so let's talk about that before we go. The last time that Lots is mentioned in the Bible to guide a decision is actually not in the Old Testament. It actually, surprisingly, it still even happens after Jesus. If you look at Acts chapter 1, The disciples, and now they are called apostles, they're trying to pick out a 12th guy because Judas was dead, and they felt that they really needed a replacement for Judas as they set out on the Great Commission. And so the 12th spot comes down to just these two guys, Justus and Matthias. And here's what it says in Acts 1.26. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So they are picking a 12th apostle, and they use lots to do it. This is a major decision, guys. <laughs> this, was, this was carrying out the Great Commission. This is taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Okay, they are building the church. This is after Jesus. Revelation says that the names of the 12 apostles, they're like written on the foundations of heaven or something. So basically, they are deciding who the 12th guy is by playing Eeny, Meeny, Mighty Matthias. Now, was that right? Was that wrong? Well, in their defense, if you look at the Old Testament, this was biblical precedent. All through the Bible, this was how you could make decisions, even big decisions. And the Bible doesn't say anything or another about the wisdom of casting lots to decide who the new 12th apostle should be. That kind of bothers me. I mean, (laughs) it might bother us that the disciples were using lots to make this kind of decision, and this is happening right here in the New Testament. So, does that mean that we should make decisions that way? Are we given authority by God to make decisions by casting lots? Well, I think there is a big significance to what happens right after this moment. So, this is the tail end of Acts chapter 1, okay? That was literally the last verse of the chapter, and what does the very next verse say, okay? 
the very next verse kicks off Acts 2. Okay? Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, everything changes. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they make a decision right here by casting lots. And immediately after that, and when I say immediately, I mean right after that, the Holy Spirit falls on them. And from that moment on, making decisions by casting lots is never mentioned again in the Bible. In a commentary by Daniel Kidner, this is on the book of Proverbs, when they were talking about that verse, it says, uh, where it says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This is what he says about the practice of casting lots today. He said, God's last use of this method was significantly the last event before Pentecost. Everything changed when the Holy Spirit fell. Now, the Spirit is supposed to be our guide. So, if it doesn't feel right, this idea of casting lots to make a decision, you know, flipping a coin to decide what God wants me to do, guess what? It doesn't feel right because it's not right. That's not what God intends for us to do today. What he intends for us is to seek the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verse 3, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, we walk according to the Spirit. Verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their, mind on the th- set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And verse 14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So the expectation for the Christian is that you'll be led by the Spirit. Now, maybe you say, well, how can I know if I'm being led by the Spirit? How can I recognize the Spirit's voice? Well, the Bible gives us several indicators that we can recognize the Holy Spirit's voice. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So, fear. Fear is not an emotion that is of God. If you're making a decision based on fear, that's not listening to God. That's just listening to your own emotions. That's following the flesh, okay? 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So that fear that you're feeling, that didn't come from God. God gives you a sound mind. You can maintain composure in a storm, okay? Jesus napped through some storms. He had perfect peace even in tumultuous circumstances. And he said, my peace, I leave with you. So we're given that peace from God. God doesn't give us fear. God gives us peace. We're going to talk more about peace in a few moments. But that fear that you're feeling, that is not what is supposed to guide your decision making. That fear is not from the Spirit. What else is an identifier of something from the Spirit? Galatians 5.16, where it says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, so if something what you're if what you're feeling in making a decision, if it's fueled by the flesh, if it's fueled by fleshly emotions, then it's not from God. 
The spirit leads you in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. If you're being led by jealousy or being led by anger, then that's not the spirit, that's the flesh. If you're being led by those things, stop right where you are. Don't pass go. Do not collect $200. Don't do anything until you get back under the spirit's control. This is all detailed in Galatians 5 if you want to, if you want to chase that down. So if you're struggling with a big decision and you're trying to be led by the spirit, read Galatians 5. See if those fleshly emotions are what is motivating you. And you know what? As you get more familiar with the Spirit's voice, you're also going to get more familiar with Satan's voice. Okay, guys, Satan talks to us. He's constantly lying to you. He's always trying to mess with your head. But as you become more familiar with the Spirit's voice, you'll also recognize the counterfeit's voice. You're going you're gonna to recognize him better and be able to shut his lies down. One more really important tool that you need to keep in your tool belt is Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, he says, don't worry about it, pray about it. If it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about it. And if you've been worrying about it for a long time, pray about it for a long time. And I believe God is going to shape your thoughts as you do that, and he will lead you to the right decision whenever you go through that process. He has done that for me more times than I can count. I'll just be praying about something, and the answer just kind of comes together in my mind. So just keep praying until you have the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's a big one. That is what you are looking for. You you will know what to do because you are going to have peace about it, okay? You're going to be praying. You're going to say, God, should I do option A? All right, just ask God about just option A. Forget about option B for a minute. Just pray about option A and then wait. Wait on God. And then you say, okay, God, what about option B? And you talk to God about option B. Okay, describe option B to him and then wait on him and see if you get peace about that. Talk to God about option A. Talk to God about option B. See what you have peace about. If it's neither one, wait on the Lord. Ask him to show you a third option. Don't get quick about it, okay? Be patient. Be patient to work through this with God because this is how relationship with God is built. You might be going through a trial, a struggle, and maybe God is using that situation to teach you how to rely on him. Now, of course, there are some issues where the Bible clearly states what to do, okay? And and in those situations, if the Bible has spoken on it, (laughs) it doesn't matter then how we feel about it. We should listen to the Bible on issues where it is clear, and we should make decisions based on biblical principles and biblical wisdom, even whenever we don't have a direct verse about it, okay? We should read books like Proverbs, because they are books of wisdom, and they will help guide our decisions. But when it comes to issues that the Bible doesn't directly address— Okay, when you're trying to decide to move to to this state or that state, to take this job or that job, well, then you should pray and you should ask the Holy Spirit, ask him to, to give you peace of mind about one of those things and follow what gives you peace of mind. That's the model that we need to follow. I mean, in general, um, but as New Testament believers, that's what we need to do is pray about things, even fast about things. Fasting, it's one of those things that just seems to bring clarity to God's will. So seek God's spirit, even ask him specific questions, okay? When, when the apostles, 
including Paul, when he had to make a decision about where to go on his missionary journeys, they didn't do that by casting lots. The Holy Spirit would direct them where to go. In Acts 8, 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Okay, that just a direct information given from the Spirit, just a direct download of information told Philip exactly where to go. Sometimes the Holy Spirit would tell them where not to go. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So how did they know not to go to those places? Well, I don't know. Maybe they just didn't have peace about it. But they were led by the Spirit, not by casting lots. Okay, When they were trying to figure out who should go on these journeys, the Holy Spirit would tell them who it was to be. Acts 13.2, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. When they tried to decide which Old Testament rules to follow in the New Testament, they said in Acts 15.28, It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Okay, so what am I gathering here as I look at how, how decisions were made in the book of Acts? That it would be very beneficial to your Christian walk to get very sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit, to where he can say, go over here, don't go over there, and you just know when it's the Spirit talking to you. That is what I'm gathering here from the book of Acts, not to cast lots, but to listen to the voice of the Spirit. And listen. You got to learn the difference in peace and the peace that surpasses all understanding. There's a difference in those two things, okay? I might know when I'm being led by God and doing what God wants me to do, and I might still stress about some things in that whole process. And I'm not saying stress is okay, okay? I'm not trying to say it's good to have stress, but I shouldn't stress. But I might have peace that I'm in God's will, even though I don't always have peace knowing how it's going to turn out, okay? Uh, I'll try to give an example here. When we made the decision to adopt our, our one of our foster kids several years ago, I had peace between me and God that it was the right thing to do, that he was leading us to do this. But I was still nervous as heck about the whole process. And, you know, I was like, well, what if the court says no? What, you know, all that stuff. I'm, wor- I'm worried about a bunch of details. I was nervous about how things might turn out after we adopted him. I had heard horror stories before about people adopting kids, and then it turns into this nightmare. And and once it's adoption, if it's not foster care anymore, well, there's no take backs then. Now it's a permanent thing. So, I mean, I'm kind of worrying about worst case scenarios. I had lots of stress. I'm not saying I should have. Maybe I shouldn't have, but I'm just going to be honest with you here. I still did. I still had a lot of stress. And yet, when I prayed about it, I was given the peace that surpasses all understanding. Okay. So I had stress, but I had peace that I was in God's will because I had the peace that passes all understanding. There's a difference in what you might say is a emotional peace or even a worldly peace versus a peace that surpasses all understanding. Okay, look at Paul in Acts chapter 20, verse 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul knew something that wouldn't give any of us peace, that if we go to this or that city to be a missionary for Jesus, we are going to be afflicted. We're going to be imprisoned. We're going to be tortured. 
That would, that would not give me peace to know that, okay? But Paul did it anyway because he knew the difference in having an emotional peace about what made Paul feel good versus the peace that comes with following God and doing God's will. And sometimes following God's will is not always going to be the easy thing. That's not always the thing that's going to make you feel good. It's not always going to be the fun thing to do. It might look crazy to everyone else. But when you are being led by the Spirit and you know how to identify the peace that surpasses all understanding, you realize that that's a much more powerful peace to follow than even seeking your own emotional peace. Okay, so learn the difference in regular peace and the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's the peace you find when you are in God's will. And I could go on and on about this. Um, My final word on the matter. Remember that God is sovereign. God is sovereign even to a degree that we don't comprehend. God could even direct the turning of a dice. God doesn't gamble. God, God already knows every outcome, and God is guiding outcomes. He is the God of no coincidences. He's the God of Esther. He's the God of Ezekiel and Nebuchadnezzar and Paul. And God, in the Old Testament, he used the random results, or what we would call random, of casting lots to guide people. And he would do that in specific ways in the Old Testament. He even did it in the New Testament up until the Holy Spirit fell. And when he came, that changed everything. God is still sovereign, but God doesn't want us seeking a couple of dice to know his will. God wants us to seek him. And so if you want to know God's will, seek his spirit. I hope I've made that case clearly today that yes, there was a method of casting lots in the Old Testament and it worked for believers and it even worked for unbelievers. And that's probably weird to most of us. But I also hope I've made the case today that this is not how we are to make decisions anymore. We have the Holy Spirit. So let the Holy Spirit have you. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that the answer is mint chocolate chips.